With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is Free Tiffany and Play. I'm Keith Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play. Download archived editions on iTunes. Our guests today on Creativity and Play are Jill Connell and Cheryl McCarthy, authors of the new book, A Moving Child is a Learning Child, How the Body Teaches the Brain to Think. Jill is the founder of Moving Smart, and Cheryl is the creative director of Moving Smart, they're experts around the topics of child development, learning, movement, and play. Jill and Cheryl, welcome to Creativity and Play. Hi, Steve. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Great to have um, Jill from the the other side of uh, planet Earth here down in New Zealand joining us early tomorrow morning <laughs> as it were. Well, Sorry, as we I were just talking... I'm early this Thanks. Uh, as we were just talking before we went on, um, I I'm, have a 10-month-old daughter, and I find your your new book, Moving Child as a Learning Child, very very helpful to things I've been you know somewhat vaguely aware of for a long time because of my creativity work. But you've created a great great book that lays out lots of ideas about how learning happens and how the brain develops and how moving is such an important part of that and it's a very colorful book with lots of pictures and graphics and kind of developmental maps. And um, again, just a, just a great resource. And I know we'll sort of dive into several different pieces around it. Um, Joe, I want to maybe start with the subtitle of the book because it seems it's such a great way to, I think, think about the, the many specific ideas that are within the book. But the, the subtitle, How the Body Teaches the Brain to Think, which begs the question, how does the body teach the brain to think? Great question, Steve. Uh, it's really the untold story that we are trying to get across in the book, that connection between body and brain. And for young children, it's the default position of the brain. If you um, look in the book, you can see a map of how the brain actually develops, and it develops from bottom up. And those lower levels of brain development are all about movement. And our our philosophy in the book is to help children automate those lower levels of, of brain development so that their brain is free to think for, for thinking because those upper levels of brain development are all about cognition. So for young kids, what, what nature has determined for them to do is to, to move, to learn, and to also automate Brain, um, brain, those lower levels, so that they can do exactly that. Steve, I'm 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 uh, not the expert in, on this team. I'm uh, uh, just I'm the writer. Um, but I think when Jill explained to me that there is this 
Um, misunderstanding in our modern culture that multitasking is possible with the brain, that was the part that made me stop and go, wow. Um, we can't do more than one thinking task at a time. And as Jill said, the brain is wired to prioritize physical movement first. So when we start thinking about how we're trying to get kids to learn so early, if they haven't automated their physical movement patterns first, they won't be able to concentrate on the other other things we're trying to teach them um, until they've sort of settled into their own bodies, so to speak. Jill and Cheryl, so um, you two, I know that... Um, Cheryl, you uh, worked for Hasbro for a while and were, was instrumental in creating some of our well, a couple of the well-known toys that I know about, and um, and then you two at one point came together. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your collaboration and what you know, a couple of things you've learned from that collaboration in creating this book and a book to come that'll be out next year. Well, that, that's right, Mary Alice. I worked for Hasbro for 30 years, so I always tell people by trade I'm a, I'm a toy maker, both by trade and at heart, to be honest. Um, and I, had, I have worked on a lot of the brands that you know kids love to this day, like My Little Pony and Candyland and Mr. Potato Head. Um, but one of the most important brands um, I, I ever worked on was Play School. And that's where Jill and I met. You see, Jill was a, um, a, a consultant to, to the global play school play panel for, for many years, uh, working with our, our designers and our marketers to better understand what makes kids tick. And that's where we first met and uh, started to work on some projects together and found a real kindred spirit around, around uh, Jill's philosophy. So that's how we met. Jill, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, I, I had been looking for some time to find the right fit for a person to to co-write with my next book. I had a lot of um, ideas in my head based on 30 years of teaching practice. And um, Cheryl and I just clicked as a, as, a, as a team. And I think it's quite a unique team because of Cheryl's um, creative brain and my uh, developmental brain, it, what we've tried to establish in the book is a very easy to follow, um, non-confrontational, here's why, here's how approach to understanding how children grow and develop and why play is such a huge part of, of their development. Um, and we've tried to illustrate this through the um, what we call motivators in the book, ideas of simple activities you can do. And I think that combination of Cheryl and I has been quite magical in the way that uh, the book has come together. Yes, I, and I think you succeeded in, in your progression in the book and, and making it all playful and colorful at the same time and a great learning experience. But I also wonder if, uh, just a, que a question which may not be fully answered here, but just in your collaboration, 
I bet you two learned a lot for yourself as adults about movement and play and how to create play spaces and take risks. Did you not? One of the things... Absolutely. One of the things we discovered along the way, because we originally wrote a parenting book, um, and then our publisher asked for us to focus more on education, but I think you'll agree it's actually a book for both was we started to dig deep down into uh, is play and is movement just about running around outside, kicking a ball and having huff and puff. And for me, there are so many movement messages that kids give us along the way that show that actually nature has a plan and nature has uh, some specific things that, children need to have in their daily physical diet um, that helps grow and develop the brain. So what we discovered on the second writing of the book was uh, a tool called the Kinetic Scale, which at a glance visually shows uh, a parent or a teacher what at at a specific developmental stage of, of a child's growth, what are the physical components or or the ingredients that make up a well-balanced physical diet. And that was pretty exciting, really. Uh, And what you see in the book is as children move through the the, um, step-by-step, their their movement development, the, um, the ingredients or the proportions change. And that was something really exciting that we have um, discovered and had lots of joy telling everybody about because it makes so much sense. Yeah, and then and then we during that second writing we said, gosh, let's let's do this in as in a simple way as possible. So we created uh, the kinetic scale as a as a graphic, so it's really easy to understand. And it wound up we 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 actually created a seesaw, which was so perfectly iconic of what we were trying to communicate, that there are, um, it, it is a scale, but it actually is a seesaw, too. And, and listeners that can find that scale, I think, on your movingsmart.co.ne's um, NZ website, correct? Right. That's right. That's right. And we so, also blog about Steve on our blog as well. And we, we have put a link both to your site and the book on the show website for today as well, so we encourage people to check that out. Uh, Joe, again, a very personal question, because every time I open the book, I see something that I am either directly observing or about to uh, experience in my life at the moment, uh, one of which is, is uh, starting to crawl um, one day before her 10th, 10th month birthday. Uh, but it was interesting in talking to people, you know, about when, when kids start to crawl um, or not, as the case may be. So, you know, several people saying my, my child never really crawled, just, you know, at seven or eight or nine months started walking. But somebody recently said to me that uh, it, it's, it's great that she's not bypassing the uh, crawling before walking stage because of the impact on language, which I had never heard before. And I'm, I'm wondering if, in fact, that's true. And if so, what is the connection between crawling and language before walking? 
Julie, I think that one's for you. Yeah, I thought you might say that, sure. Uh, <laughs> what, what crawling does, Steve, is well, a number of things. I mean, it's wonderful for exploration. It's great for developing uh, pincer grip and fine motor. It's great for independence, um, learning spatial awareness. But in terms of brain development, what crawling, and, um, and I have to say here, uh, Opposition movement. So you can do opposition movement in all sorts of different positions. So, so marching and climbing are also opposition movements. When you do those kinds of movements, it develops really crucial pathways in the corpus callosum between the left and right hemisphere of the cortex. And what that does is, oh, big pardon. Um, the and what that does. The, the more pathways you develop, the better the communication between the left and right hemisphere and and the com, uh, communication between the language centers in the brain. So basically what crawling does is it helps organize all of the, the pathways that, that develop what I call superhighways and allow the brain to process and communicate easily. Well, uh, Jill and Cheryl, I notice in the in the book you um, in different places you address opening up play spaces for kids and possibilities for playing outdoors. All in and talk about how adults uh, sometimes contain children, or how we do this through things like car seats, which are needed, of course, and uh, high chairs and things like that. And so there's this um, continuum between containment and uh, risk-taking and open play, open space. Um, and I'm thinking personally, too, about my grand twins, who are four, and they, uh, Chase and Jenny, and they are all over the place. And they, <laughs> and one of them is a spinner. You talk about a spinner. And I'm not sure where Chase fits in yet. I haven't quite gotten there. But they, they're definitely unique uh, players, unique kids. And so I wonder if um, you can talk about that particular age or why preschoolers, um, you know, what, about preschoolers and what they learn by, through movement, they definitely don't learn by sitting down, as you say in the book. So can you, can you address that, all those things? I'm sure it's great. Sure. Um, you brought up a very important uh, movement pattern called spin, uh, you know, spinning, uh, and all children love to spin, roll, and hang upside down. Uh, the brain, as I said, those lower levels of brain development are all about movement. And one of the very important components of automating movement is to develop your balance system or your vestibular system. The most advanced form of balance is to fill, and that's kind of an oxymoron when you really think about it. But when you think about children and how they move and what movement patterns they do, uh, they love to be upside down. They love to spin and they love mm -hmm. to roll. And what they're actually doing is is naturally developing their sense of balance. And of course, if you don't have good balance, you don't have good coordination. It um, underpins everything. Um, so, you know, really when you see your child lying upside down on the couch to watch television or they are going headfirst down the slide at the playground, 
those kinds of movements are actually helping the brain and the body to develop their sense of balance. So every, what I, I guess I'm saying here, Mary Alice, is every movement a child does is for a reason. And it's not that they're not sitting still because they're misbehaving. It's usually because nature says, I need to move. And that's mm-hmm. what the preschool is all about, really. And related to this, this question as well, one of, one of the things that came up um, at a conference I was at a couple of years ago was about a little bit older kids when they get into school and this sense of moving versus sitting still in the classroom. And I'm wondering if in the research you've been doing, either for this book or your, or your other work, if you've come across examples where schools are, are sort of giving giving up a little bit of that sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down sense to allow for what you were just describing kids naturally are wanting to do at throughout the early stages of their lives and, in, and into the early years of school particularly. Um, wh- one of the examples of the conference I saw was where designers that were playing with different designs for desks where kids could actually stand and it's a moving foot bar for the foot that was constantly going. But I'm wondering if you've seen other examples that you might be able to share where schools are attempting to allow for this natural thing that's happening all the time as opposed to trying to fight against it, as we so often seem to do? There's lots of people uh, and ideas floating around, Steve. I've seen classrooms where children sit on medicine balls. Um, They have apparatus that they can go and sit on. In fact, in my classroom, I had monkey bars inside my classroom. And... um, (laughs) So, you know, and I had a, have a product called a Busy Giddy, which is a wonderful um, kind of cone that you sit in and you can spin around. So, you know, my children knew to snack on activity. And we talk about this in the book quite a bit, you know, providing experiences for kids within the classroom that when they understand that their body actually needs to move, and, and we do it subtly as adults too. You know, we start swinging on our chair or we get up and walk around. Um, children just naturally gravitate to these things when they are, um, when they feel the need, I guess. And it wasn't, and, and I, I guess it's our perception of what we consider learning to be. But I knew in my classroom that children knew that in order to be able to concentrate, they needed to do these things. So they just naturally snacked on it. In the book, we talk quite a bit about having a classroom where the children create their own learning space. And I've seen this happen uh, you know, in, in classrooms. I'm a great believer of uh, when children are writing that they need to make themselves comfortable so that they can think about their, what they're writing about and not about how their body feels. So, so you know, my experience is that children are quite comfortable writing while they're lying on the floor uh, or in lots of different positions depending on where their, their body is, is, is at in terms of its development. So I think we, as teachers we need to think outside the square and be guided by our children. Jill and Cheryl, recently we in Seattle area here we had a pop-up adventure play came as a, a group a group of people came and they uh, led us in some pop-up adventure play with a, two different schools and also did a workshop. And during the workshop, one of the um, well, one and many actually of the parents brought up the idea, which I've heard many times of 
uh, safety issues and risk taking and wouldn't that be dangerous to do that or this or that. And so I noticed in your book you write about um, the zone of uncertainty, managing safety. So can you, that, and I know we've talked about this before, that this is, this is something that comes up for you as well, So can, and, and you address it in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that area and how that looks on a risk continuum? Do you want to take that one, Cheryl? <clears throat> I, um, well, yes, of course. Um, when we've, been, we've dealt with the issue of safety many, many times um, because of our curriculum. Um, the, the issue really is um, today it seems is there, there seems to be a, um, um, a con- there seems to be um, people thinking that things either have to be perfectly safe. Or, or they're extremely dangerous, and there's there's very little room in between the two. So when we were writing the book, we said, "Gosh, what we really need to do is understand a little bit more about the difference between giving kids room to move and space to explore their bodies, and standing and hovering over them to the point that they can't move and they can't get the experiences they need." So we created this thing called the zone of uncertainty, which puts um, uh, perfectly safe on one end and complete off-limits danger on the other. And when you do that, you start to realize there's a whole host of things that kids can and should be doing that, yeah, might have a little bit of risk, but helping them manage that is the way forward so that they can move their bodies the way they need to, which helps to develop their brain and, most importantly, starts to give them the confidence they need to explore both physically and, of course, intellectually, um, the world around them. So um, the zone of uncertainty is simply a method by which we ask adults to consider the amount of risk, and, of course, risk is always, always, always the, the call of the adult in, in the room at the time. I mean, we, we can't make that call for people um, sitting here. Um, but when you think about how you want kids to grow and learn, it's important to realize that they do need to take uh, measured risks, um, and, and then we go on to explain different ways that you can guide that process and help them think about safety for themselves. Jill has this wonderful thing we call the, um, the, the safety safari. Uh, Jill, do you want to explain how you, how you um, created the safety safari? Well, well, we, um, I believe children need to take responsibility to some extent for the for decision making with guidance from parents, so in adults who are how are playing with them. And I had a case where I had a was called into a kindergarten, and they were experiencing uh, what they call uh, bullying with their three and four year olds. Which, you know, really, do we need to put a label on those things? But um, what we discovered in this kindergarten was that the, the children were, a high percentage of them were from families where there was a one, one parent only. And what we, what we know about um, kids is that they crave physical contact with, with adults. Um, rough and tough, rough and, sorry, rough and tumble play is, is a critical part of their their development, they need to learn to, to control their aggression, their physical strength, learn about how 
how much uh, to push and how, you know, to, to do to control those things. And rough and tumble play is a big part of that. So um, to cut a long story short, we instigated what we called a rough and tumble mat. And the children before we even, and, and that means the children could invite the, uh, somebody to play on the rough and tumble mat that we had, rules of engagement that they actually uh, developed themselves. But before we did that, we took the children on a safety safari and we talked about where would be the safe places to put our rough and tumble mat. Uh, for instance, would it be a good idea to put it near the swings? Why wouldn't it be a good idea to put it near the swings? What about if we put it on the the, the porch? You know, and children then started to take responsibility. They started to think about consequence. What was going to happen if I put my rough and tumble mat here? Where would be a good place to do it? So they started to make really good decisions about about safety. Um, and just to that point, it was, what happened was uh, within a couple of weeks, the children actually stopped this, this concerning um, physical play fighting and had fun on the rough and tumble mat. It was a huge success. And the, all, some of those things you're mentioning, decision making and confidence, then um, moves into adulthood, for, uh, and you address those uh, areas that, that um, movement helps the children uh, in their development during their childhood, but then it, it spreads into, it will keep going as, as children grow in adolescence and adulthood. Yeah, one yeah, Cheryl, I was just going to pick up on the adulthood question. I was curious because of the work that you've done in the corporate world for, I believe, many, many years. What some of the connections you made between some of these topics we've been talking about that you've both written about in the book as they relate to adults in terms of how they might be applied in terms of the way we learn as adults in the workplace and, again, the whole aspect of movement in adults so often is a piece that seems to be um, most given up for many, many people. Um, did you make connections along the way in terms of the work you've done previously in the corporate world and how, how all of this might be applicable there with adults? Well, uh, for certain, um, movement is an essential part of the creative process. I don't know anybody who can sit still and, and be creative for very long. Um, so for me, Steve, um, when I think about my career in the toy business um, and play, um, essentially what we, uh, in the book, what we talked about so much was that play is the natural uh, process both for developing the body and the brain and, of course, along with that, creativity because when kids, for example, when kids take on the role of another character, uh, they're role-playing, uh, that they're playing a princess or a superhero, they start to move in the way in which that princess or superhero might move, and all of a sudden they start to discover that they can do things the way the superhero can, like leap over the, leap over the sidewalk. They didn't realize they could do. 
So movement is a great motivator for creativity. And when you let your body lead sometimes, it will take you places, uh, particularly for kids. They didn't even know they could go. And in the remaining uh, minute or so that we have, uh, any any work that you both are doing in, in the United States that people can watch out for you to uh, perhaps see in person or workshops or book, book events coming up that we should know about? Well, Jill was just here in March, and we're actually um, looking right now to schedule her next tour, which we would believe will be the first couple of weeks in September here in the United States. Okay. Jill is also so, touring around uh, New Zealand, of course, and um, we've got a couple of other opportunities um, out of New Zealand uh, for the rest of the year for Jill. So if uh, anybody's listening and interested to connect w- with you all, uh, they, they should contact you between now and then. And again, I'll get a link to your, uh, both the book and your um, website for Moving Smart as well. So I encourage people to check that out. And again, Mary Allison, I both said to also check out the book as well. We're both big fans of it and uh, appreciate you joining us today. So, Jill and and Cheryl, thank you for being with us on Creativity and Play. Thank you so much, Steve. Yes, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Mary Allison. It's been great to to catch up with you. So, Jill Connell and Cheryl McCarthy are authors of the new book, A Moving Child is a Learning Child. How the Body Teaches the Brain to Think. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you, Jill and Cheryl, for sharing your work and for this wonderful resource that you offer parents, grandparents, teachers, and child care workers, etc. Thanks so much. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.